Today, of course, is the first Sunday after Easter. Coming up to this day, Pastor Richard has been guiding us through Luke's account of Holy Week. And along the way, we've heard about a number of the major hen points in God's story to bring his reign and rule into the world. On Palm Sunday a few weeks ago, we saw in Luke chapter 19 how Jesus received the adulation of the crowds as he entered into Jerusalem, much to the disdain of the religious leaders around him. On Monday, Thursday evening, for those of us who were here, we were reminded at that service of the last meal that Jesus shared with his disciples and how he said that he would not share of that meal again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. A little after that hinge point, he was betrayed and then handed over for a false trial that ended in his punishment and execution by crucifixion. And then last Sunday on Easter morning, we read Luke's account in chapter 24, where Jesus appears to his disciples on the road to Emmaus in his resurrected body. And at the end of that conversation with them, he commissions them to be his witnesses to all that they had seen and heard. In verses 46 and 47, it says, Jesus told them, this is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem. You are my witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my Father has promised. But stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. And then in his follow-up work to the gospel, the book of Acts... Luke records this same charge that Jesus gave to his followers, where Jesus says to them in chapter 1, verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to all the ends of the earth. And from there we know from history how the body of Christ began to grow such to a degree that it encompassed most of the Roman Empire in just a few hundred years. And now it continues to grow all around our planet today. And it's growing especially in some places that may be unexpected to us as Westerners, places like China and India and Iran. Throughout all of the years after the resurrection of Jesus, on that first Easter, his call remains the same to all of us who would claim his life story as our own. And the call is to be his witnesses. A witness is simply someone who has firsthand knowledge of an event and then who shares that experience, that information with another. Now it's clear that you and I can't be the same kind of witnesses as those original followers of Jesus because obviously we weren't there. So the question is how? How can we be a witness to what Christ has done, not only for the world, but also for what he has done for us personally? Well, as to this question, I want to draw our attention this morning, and in order to do so, I want to bring us back to an episode in Scripture before the resurrection, when someone who encountered Jesus felt compelled to share with others how his life had been changed. So many of us are familiar with the healing of the blind man in the Gospel of John, chapter 9. 
Let me offer us just a little background information to that account so that we can set the scene for what's happening. At the end of chapter 8, we find the religious leader of, leaders of Jesus' day surrounding him, quizzing him. And at some part in the conversation, Jesus said this. He says, before Abraham was, I am. That didn't make them very happy. They were enraged because they knew exactly what Jesus was saying. He was making himself co-eternal with the Father. They were so excited by what Jesus said that they made a decision to decorate his face with rocks. And then in chapter 9, just off the temple complex, Jesus encounters a man born blind from birth. The belief on the streets in those days was that suffering was the product of sin. The product or the popular debate during that time was only about who did the sinning. Was it the afflicted person, him or herself? Or was it their parents? Jesus isn't having any of that. So let's read together now, starting in John chapter 9, verse 1. Uh, For those of you who did not bring an analog or a digital Bible with you, there are Bibles located where you are sitting. You can turn to page 1664 in the New Testament portion of your Bibles. The verses won't be on the screen, so you'll need to follow along uh, with me. Because the account is quite lengthy, extends to the chapter, I'm going to have us read a few verses and then I'll skip ahead by narrating uh, through some of them as we go along. So be prepared for that as I read. Verse 1. As Jesus went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man or his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, Jesus spit on the ground, making some mud with the saliva. And he put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam, a word that means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. Okay, so at this point, the nosy neighbors get involved. He goes home. The neighbors see what has happened, and they're curious. So they asked him, how did you receive your sight? And the man responds in this way, picking back up in verse 11. He says, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed. And then I could see. Not leaving well enough alone, the nosy neighbors then take the man to see the Pharisees so that they can interrogate him. My guess is the nosy neighbors knew that the Pharisees didn't like Jesus. The account indicates that all of this happened on the Sabbath. In those days, there were strict regulations about what one could and could not do on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees were the arbiters of those rules. There were loopholes, by the way. So the Pharisees asked the man how this happened. The man replies in verse 15. He says, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and now I see. They continue the grilling, this time bringing in the man's parents to testify. 
That didn't get any new answer that they wanted to hear. So they bring the man back again. They continue to grill him and they egg him on to call Jesus the sinner, which is code for Sabbath regulation breaker. The man replies this way in verse 25. He says, whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I do know, I was born blind, but now I see. May the Lord God bless to us this reading of a portion of his word. I remember it was the fall of 1985, the beginning of my junior year in college. For many of you, I've already dated myself, haven't I? And I found myself doing what everyone else was doing in a college bar in Greensboro, North Carolina. Bar was located uh, between Market Street and Friendly Avenue. Those of you who know Greenville probably know that location. Because of my family situation, I lived with my mom and commuted to school every day. All the guys I was with that night were my friends from high school, some of whom were enrolled in college as I was, some of them were not. I remember that Farm Aid was on some of the TVs. How many of you remember Farm Aid? Now I'm dating you, see? Okay. For those of you who don't know, Farm Aid was this nationally televised concert back in the day that was led by artists, American artists, like um, Bonnie Raitt and Bob Dylan, Tom Petty. And, and their goal was to raise money for struggling farmers in the Midwest. And I thought that was pretty cool. But other than that, I remember hanging out there in the middle of the dance floor in the midst of everyone and everything that was going on. Some of you know what happens on college bar dance floors. Some of you don't. I don't imagine that it's changed a lot over the years. And all of a sudden, it was like God was speaking to me. And he said, all right, now this is deeply complex and theological. So I want to make sure that you all are tracking with me, okay? There's a lot of different, you know, dimensions to this. This is what he said. God said, Brian, you know what? This is all pretty dumb. This was it. You know, at least for me, God has this wonderful ability to kind of cut to the chase and to get to the heart of the matter without a lot of complex overtones. And so I took a 360 look around just to make sure that I had an accurate sense of what was going on around me. You know, trust but verify. And sure enough, the place smelled like stale beer and cigarettes. It was loud. And there were herds of people over here. And there were herds of people over there. Everyone acting pretty much ridiculously without much direction from the frontal lobe. And so I said in response, yeah, you're right. This is all pretty dumb. Now, in a new, I knew in an instant at that moment that God had me exactly where he wanted me. Because he'd done this to me before previous times in my life. He had backed me into a corner where there was no other obvious answer. And so I got ready for the next question. And I knew it was coming as well. He said to me this. Don't you think it's about time that you got serious about your relationship with me? Have you ever had one of those times in your life when your, 
your whole life just kind of flashes in front of you. In a split second, I thought about what would it mean for me to drop this scene. It would probably mean losing most of my friends from high school. And I was kind of quiet and shy at that point in my life, believe it or not. In fact, I don't know if I've ever told you all, when I was in uh, high school, when I was a senior in high school, I was so terrified of public speaking that when the youth directors uh, would go around and ask us to participate in that, I just stopped going to youth groups so they couldn't find me. So if y'all can't see the irony of that today, I can't help you very much. Other than to say that God has this incredible sense of humor and he keeps demonstrating that in my life all the time. Well, I, I guess I had a good number of friends, but I didn't have a lot of them. What would I do if I lost my herd? And this was my junior year in college. I mean, that's when all the fun stuff's supposed to start, right? Whatever that fun stuff is. And just as quickly as all this went through my mind, God said this. He said very simply, he said, Brian, I'll take care of that. Trust me. Now remember this interchange is going on in the midst of that loud, raucous dance floor. But somehow in the midst of all that activity, I had this peace over me that I, I simply can't in, explain in words for you today. It was almost like an out-of-body experience. And so I said, okay, you're right. You got me. And from that point that night, I dropped that scene and I began to follow him. Not always perfectly, but more and more. And literally within days, my life began to change in some wonderful ways. Not to say that everything was easy, but the amazing thing was that God brought a totally new group of friends in my life and we discipled one another in the scriptures and we learned from one another what it meant to live in the community and to minister to one another. We learned that life in Christ is not just simply a me and Jesus kind of affair, but one that involves deep friendships and accountability. My two best friends that season in my life, one of them went on to become a United Methodist pastor. The second one went on to become a Southern Baptist pastor. I imagine if the three of us got together and walked back into that bar, we would have had an incredible joke in front of us. Do you remember, the, have you ever heard the story about the time when, yeah, okay, you guys know how it goes. God had already started speaking to my life when I was five years old. But it was that night when I was 19 in a bar off of Market Street in Greensboro, North Carolina that I really began to follow Christ on a journey in which he would take me to places I would never imagine. And I would meet people who would enrich my life in some incredible ways. Some of those people are you. And the story of that journey is still being written. Now, many of you with a church background, you know what I've just done for the last 10 minutes or so. I shared my what, and it begins with a T. I shared my testimony. 
And by sharing a part of my testimony, I became a witness to God's resurrection power, which continues in my life. Actually, I only demonstrated about half of what it means to be a good witness, what a good witness will do. And so this morning, for the rest of our time together, I want to share with you a full picture of what it means to be a witness for Christ. So if you would, I'm going to ask that you would find a scratch piece of paper, something to, to write on. Maybe it's the piddling pads for little Presbyterians. I'll, just a little something. I'm going to give you an outline, just a few words that I'm going to share with you, and then I'll give you an idea of maybe what you can do uh, with the outline that I share. So actually, the whole thing is pretty simple. It's two parts. In order for us to be a faithful witness for Christ, this side of his resurrection, he calls us to first be his presence in the world. The word there is presence. In John chapter 1 verse 14 it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now notice the order at the end of the verse there. Grace first, then truth. Jesus constantly led with grace. He showed up in people's lives, authentically presencing himself in their lives and demonstrating the Father's grace in those relationships. Only at that point did he then communicate the truth that they might need to hear. By the way, this idea of presence is where we get the call to love our neighbor. And I've talked with you all about this idea in the past. Remember, uh, we did a little tic-tac-toe grid of your neighborhood and I asked you to write down your neighbor's names, maybe something uh, about them so you can have a sense of who's around you when you begin to uh, share with them. The whole idea is for you and I to go out into the world like Jesus did rather than waiting for people to come to us. So as a congregation, we have what I think is a pretty strong and growing habit of showing up in people's lives. In my position, I get to hear tons of stories about how so many of you are presencing yourselves in our community, developing relationships with people who are struggling to move forward in their lives with issues related to things like affordable housing, or addiction, the adoption or the fostering process, issues surrounding life. And of course, there's our long-standing commitment to our friends at Neighborhood Focus, which you heard about, and our children at Hollis Academy. This morning, I want to share with all of you another example of how some in our congregation are presencing themselves in our community with the love and the grace of Christ, this time in the restorative justice process. So if you would, let's play the video. I became involved with Jumpstart as a prisoner. In 2007, um, I was serving a 10-year prison sentence. I had come to faith in Christ on the verge of suicide as an atheist. As I started with my first mentee, uh, main job was just to meet him, talk to him for an hour or so, and as part of our program, we just started eating lunch once a week, and so I just would uh, meet him, bring him to lunch, and really my whole job was to really just be a friend. Leadership in, in the Christian uh, arena should be very gentle in some ways in that 
we are not in authority over any of the people that we work with. We're not called to just orchestrate everything and be in charge and have things go our way. We're called to share the Word of God and encourage other Christians. So one of my favorite Bible verses is 1 Corinthians 3, 6 through 7, which says, I planted Apollos water, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. And that really relates to Jumpstart. Jumpstart, they've watered me with wisdom. They've tended to my growth and my relationship with the Lord. And they've been delighted in me when I flourish and I've stood tall and strong. I really believe I benefit more from Jumpstart than Jumpstart benefits from me. I, I, that, that's just my honest feeling. And I, I say that because when, when you see the effect of God on those people's lives, of having God in their lives, of people who are never going to get out, that's something you never forget. You know, a lot of people, they really have an intrinsic desire once they know the Lord to serve others. I think the Lord puts that in us. Um, he says, by this, all men shall know that you are my disciples by the love that you have for one another. So I would encourage those that are watching this today to find somewhere to serve Jesus and see if he doesn't become more real to you. That may be at Jumpstart, that may be somewhere else. But if you don't have satisfaction in your relationship with the Lord, it's probably because you're not serving him somewhere. Because that's why he came, was to seek and to save and to serve. And as we join him there, the Lord becomes more real to us then than he ever has before. Presence. Modeling Jesus' presence involves just showing up and being an agent of, in this case, God's justice in the world. On behalf of our neighbors who may be an orphan or a prisoner, a homeless person, or someone who is just lonely. And we do all this not because we're setting people up so that we can then stick them between the eyes with the truth of the gospel, you know, a Bible bullet. And we're not doing this so that folks will look at us and say that we're such great purpose people. But the reason why we do this, the reason why we go out and we love on people is just simply because the love of Christ compels us to show the love that has been first shown to us. So the first part of our witness is just showing up so that we can model Jesus' presence wherever he's calling us. If you're not sure about where Christ might be calling you in our community or somewhere beyond, talk to Pastor Claire or me about forming a missional community around some need uh, in our area. Or go down to our new missions wall in our, in our gathering space. I actually don't go today, it's not done. But it's coming, and there's going to be some interactivity designed into that. You'll be able to go through menus and see some of the places that we've already identified that God is on the move in our community, and you can learn how you can be a part of that also. Or there might be some place that God is calling you that has nothing to do with anything we're currently doing in the life of the church right now. How exciting. Pursue that. Be present in the lives of others, and then use the second part that I'm going to share with you now. So number two. The second part of our witness is our proclamation. Our proclamation. So presence and proclamation. If the first part of our witness is about our show, the second part is about our tell. So it's show and tell. It's as easy as that. And this involves, the telling involves cultivating our ability to articulate the way that God has been moving in our lives. And the truth of the matter is all of us have, who have come to know Christ have some good news to tell. 
Stories about how God has met us at some point of need or maybe even a time when we felt self-satisfied and we didn't even know that we needed a Savior. But God came to us anyway. Our stories might be highlighted by a time when we needed forgiveness or healing or deliverance or hope or maybe a time when we just needed transformation like the story I shared with you this morning. But the thing is, we may be unaware that we even have a story So it's to this that I want to turn our attention now. So there are three parts to an effective redemptive story. And there they are. You can look on the video screen and I'm going to invite you to write down the three words that are underlined and capitalized there for you. The framework looks like this. What our life was like before our encounter with Christ. The moment during which we encountered him. And then afterwards what our life was like after the experience with Christ. So before, during, and after. It's that simple. So although there are many examples in Scripture of this type of uh, story format, the classic example of this is what we read today in John chapter 9, where we see Jesus' encounter with a man born blind. Each time when the man spoke to those who engaged him, he told his story about what life was like before Jesus. He was blind. The nature of his encounter during which he engaged with Jesus, Jesus spit in the mud, spread it over his eyes, and then told him to wash in the pool. And then afterwards, he could see. At the end, he summed up his testimony in a simple line. He says in verse 25, one thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. When I shared my testimony with all of you just a few minutes ago, I tried to follow the same pattern. I talked about my life before I had this major turning point in my life with Christ. I gave some surrounding details about uh, the night in which the encounter occurred. And then I spoke a little bit about what my life has been like afterwards. Now, I could have made the story longer. There are more details. I could have shortened it as well. And you can do the same thing. It's all depending upon the context in which you're sharing your testimony or your, or your proclamation, your faith story, whatever you want to call it. It doesn't have to be about the time when you first came to Christ. It said it can be any time in which you believe God showed up in your life and changed you. Again, much like in the way I shared today. So your testimony doesn't just have to be about when you first came to Christ. Some of you cannot even identify the day when you first realized Christ was in your life. Because he's been there every waking conscious moment. So it can also include subsequent encounters with Christ. It can even be about what God is doing in your life right now. I want to suggest an idea this morning that you can take home with you. Uh, First, make sure you've written down those words before, during, and after. And then sometime later today, if you've never done so, think through your own story or some of your stories. And after having done so, maybe then share your story with someone else uh, to whom you're close as a way of practicing what you might say and how you might share it. At the end of the day, your story will probably, in some sense, be about a time when you experience God's grace and about how some part of the truth of Christ became real in your life. So again, remember, once again, it's grace, then truth. The good news is that ultimately 
we don't have to trust the Holy, we don't have to trust ourselves to remember all the things and all the way the Holy Spirit has been speaking to us throughout our lives. We can rely upon him to reveal these things to us. And that's a promise in Luke 24 in Acts chapter 1. I've certainly found this to be the case in my own life. And so when I speak to someone about what I believe, I try to keep one eye and ear on the Father and one eye and ear on the person to whom I'm speaking And I try to consider and I try to ask God to reveal to me those parts of my story, those threads in my life that might potentially connect with what I'm hearing the person who's sharing life there with me. Now, I have to confess that sometimes I'm not very good at listening. And I find myself later on saying things like, gosh, I wish I'd said that. You know, I wish I would have remembered this and, and this kind of thing. I think that's probably true of all of us. But that's okay. Because the truth of the matter is, we're all still learning. We're learning how to be Jesus' faithful followers. And his followers are called disciples. And learning how to be an effective witness to his grace and his truth in our lives, it's an ongoing process. So my goal this morning has been to equip you, hopefully, with a few tools and some principles from Scripture so that you can continue to be a part of God's mission to our community and to the world in just the way that he's calling you. Maybe the next time when I speak, I can talk about how to connect our small stories to God's big story, because that's the ultimate goal in witnessing, by the way. But this can be a hard thing to do, because everything in our culture right now, all the stuff that we hear encourages us to do just the opposite, and that's to do this, to write our own stories. It's about us. We're the center of the universe. We're never called to surrender our stories to God's stories. And maybe while we're doing that as well, I can share some ideas about how to craft our stories, how to communicate our stories in some ways that might be effective in talking to younger generations. But for now, I want to ask you to allow me to conclude with this invitation. If you're here today, or maybe listening in from somewhere to this worship gathering from somewhere around the world. If you're still trying to write your life story all by yourself, I want to invite you to cease your striving and to surrender your story to what God is doing in the world. Maybe you're tired. Maybe you're bone tired. Maybe you're anxious. Or maybe you just have this sense that from somewhere, someone is telling you that there's more to life than the way that you're living life right now. God brought me to that point in my life. Maybe he's speaking to you in this way as well. If that's the case, then I invite you to drop your hurts, drop your past, drop your fear, drop your pride, and enter into the greatest story ever told. It's the story of God and his people called the church. And the first story, first chapter of that story started right after that first Easter Sunday so many years ago. And that story continues today to this very moment. The story's not always easy. All your problems won't be solved. But I promise you, you'll have some great stories to tell. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we want to be your witnesses, witnesses to your light and love, your grace and your truth. 
But most of the time it seems like we just don't have the words. Or it just seems like the time is not right to share. So by your promise, Holy Spirit, would you bring to our minds the parts of our stories with you that we need so that when we speak from our hearts to our neighbors about what you've done for us, we would be able to testify to your power to heal, your power to make all things new. We ask, Lord, as your faithful disciples who only want to continue to learn from your feet that you would do this for us. And we pray this in and through your wonderful name. Amen.